I was an only child. My mother and my grandmother and my grandfather really were the ones who raised me. We went to church almost every Sunday, a lot of times on Wednesdays, Thursdays. I was there until I was 18 years old. When I graduated, I left my church and went to the University of Louisville. And for me, the challenge was finding a church to go to. They either seemed overwhelming or too big or ironically too small, uh, and nothing kind of felt right. And so what I actually ended up finding was a gospel choir at the university. Uh, the Black Diamond Choir was a choir that I joined. That became my sense of family. It became my sense of church. We got to experience a lot of different churches in the city, in the region, nationally. Uh, but unfortunately, all good things have to come to an end. And I graduated college, which also meant that I had to leave the Black Diamond Choir. And that's what really started my, I guess, walk, if you want to call it that, to try to find a church home. Because in all of those things, even though I found that church in the choir, I never found a church home. I met this girl who would become my wife, Erica, at the University of Louisville. She's the one who actually brought me to Northside for the first time. We started coming more and more frequently together. Northside slowly, gradually became my church home. I feel like most things that are good in my life are sparked by my wife, and it was during the Rooted series when Nate was calling for people to join small groups. Uh, she got a text message from Zach and Kaylee Farrell uh, to join a small group. We actually affectionately call ourselves the BLG, the best life group, and it's a fitting term for us. We have 15 children amongst the five families, and if it's not for that small group, they're the ones that pushed me to serve on the worship team. We were sitting around the table, ironically, at one of the kitchen tables at one of our houses, and we were talking about the music, and I remember saying I wanted to try out and they were like, well, you, you pretty much have to at this point because we all feel the same way. For me, coming here, I was extremely apprehensive that I was gonna fit in, that I was going to feel like I belong. I can honestly tell you that that is one of the furthest thoughts from my mind when I come to the service. And I think one of the things that I quickly realized is that the heart of this church isn't, isn't about that. Our message is connecting unconnected people to Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you look like, we just want to connect you. I have been blessed to have a lot of people set the table for me, and I can't tell you how blessed I feel that the table has been set for me to be able to pour into, most importantly, my kids. To be able to sit and listen to my children enjoy coming to church and just simply singing the church's songs. <laughs> it brings a happiness to me that I never thought I needed. That to me is the power of setting the table. It's not about the destination of, you know, getting 40 people at your table. It's about the journey of just inviting one and seeing where it takes them because you don't know what that's gonna do for others. And I can honestly say that now that the table's been set for me, all I wanna do is set the table for others because I want others to be able to feel the same joy that I felt, be it in their family, in their personal life or whatever, because it's been truly life-changing for me.
Man, what a great time of worship today. What a wonderful testimony by Dom and what a great song to be able to speak after. Would you thank those guys again for sharing with us so much? Great. Good to see everybody here at the 945. We always want to take a moment to welcome those that are over in the centrum. Let them feel a part of the room. So uh, let's welcome them. Glad you guys are here with us as well. Nathan's taking a little bit of time to catch his breath after the Wednesday night to get ready to continue on in the series. But this weekend, I get to talk about a, a topic that you know really well. It's an old, old story that Jesus told about the parable of the prodigal son that I think it's kind of been uh, uh, misnamed a little bit. I think it really should be more about the loving father. And we get to dive in on something familiar that I hopefully will be this illustration of what that on-ramp is to get back on the road to the table because that's what he had to find out coming away from the faraway country and his older brother who remained home but also remained resentful about everything that was going on and the grace that his father showed uh, the younger son. Uh, he couldn't find the on-ramp back from, uh, uh, from coming from the faraway field there that he had. Uh, we moved uh, to Jeff a few weeks ago, just get on one level and found a place over there and I have discovered uh, uh, something called a roundabout. Anybody else? Uh, found that? Man, I tell you, there's nothing round about it. It's, it's, uh, it's just one kind of squiggle thing after another. And I think the first three or four times I got honked at every time coming around that. So I'm going to figure that out. But it made me think about we're, we're really looking for that, that transitional road to get to where we need to be. And that's what this story that we'll dive in on and take a look at. I, I, as I look at it in Luke 15, and if you want to uh, turn either on your phone, if you have the Bible app or, or uh, in your Bible, I'm, I'm in uh, the New Living Translation. We'll get to that in just a second. But, but the, the whole thought of understanding Jesus telling this story, and the reason he told all these parables, and a, a parable is a story that it has this deep spiritual meaning, but it's in earthly terms. So they can relate, they can resonate with that and say, yeah, I know what that character felt like. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah, I've seen that happen. And, and it began something to be something that people could, could figure out and put together. It was always to let people know of the deeper nature of God and the love of God. So even though we'll look today at a little bit of the older brother, younger brother, I want you to see the loving father. Because when it comes to setting the table, he's the one who does that for us. He's the one who invites us to that closeness and intimate relationship with him. And yet, he gives us the opportunity to set the table for other people. It's kind of like it's a three-act parable in my mind. You, you see in the beginning, it's leaving the table. He takes off, and then you see he really misses the table for a few verses, and then the long stretch is a returning to the table. So let me read for you, and I, I believe the scripture will appear, and if not, don't worry, you just hold on to, to your, your place if you're looking at that. But it, it begins with verse 11, Luke 15. It says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told him this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want to share, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide the wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land. There he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time the money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. Every Jewish boy's dream, all right? The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, 
He said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servant, quick, bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead. And now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard some music and dancing in the house. He asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. And we're celebrating because of his safe return. Well, the older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he, he replied, All these years I've slaved for you, never once uh, refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. When this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son. You've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now is found. Powerful story. Powerful story for Jesus to let the people know the true heart of the Father that's patient and truthful and generous and gracious with everybody. Now, at the end of our message today, we're going to have a simple invitation. Not right now. I'm not done yet, okay? okay. But it, it, it will be a simple opportunity, and our worship team's going to sing a song. Because you can't preach on the loving father, welcoming the prodigal, welcoming the older resentful son, welcoming all of us who have messed up, who might need a chance to take a next step towards God and have a conversation down front with somebody after that moment. But before we do, I want to ask you just to walk with me through a few things and understand we'll, we'll have a, 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 quite a few little labels. I love to kind of label things because I look in the Bible and I'll try to study and I'll say, okay, God, what just happened, you know? What just happened? Well, a lot of things happened. In the leaving the table, what happened in verse 11, it says Jesus just was driving the point home. Now back up for a moment with me, if you will. In Luke 15, there are three stories primarily. It's a series within itself. Jesus tells a story about a lost sheep, and the shepherd goes out. There's 99 in the pen, only one lost, and he goes after him. He leaves the 99. Uh, the second story is a woman who'd lost a coin, which represented her uh, probably inheritance or something very precious sentimentally, and she can't rest until she finds it. And she asks all the neighborhood to find it, and they come and they find that one lost coin. They throw a big block party, and now he's talking about the value of his son. The ante goes up every time. Now it's a family member. 
He drives the point home to those around him who weren't close to God, who needed to hear they can come home, but also to the Pharisees who represent the older brothers saying, don't you despise people far away when they come to the table. In verse 12, it's all about entitlement. You see the disrespect. Uh, uh, you know, the younger one just saying, let me go. And it, it, there's no questions asked. I thought, why didn't the father try to talk him out of that? I don't know. Maybe they'd had some conversations before that already. Remember years ago, we did a little seven-minute drama with some of that silent uh, music, uh, silent movie music in the background. And I remember playing the piano on that. We put a little thing together on that. It was the prodigal son. And I tried to think of a song when the, the younger is asking for the money. Well, that was easy. Pink Floyd money. Who doesn't know that? Okay. But the next one was when the father is talking to him and, and all I could come up with is, was a don't go chasing waterfalls. You know, <laughs> who would have thought we'd be quoting TLC from the nineties, you know, but it happens once in a while. I don't know what kind of conversation there was, but the son had this entitlement feel. And then he goes with a one way ticket. You look in verse 13, he packs up and he moves. He wastes all of his inheritance in wild living. He lost his inheritance. He lost his integrity. He lost his innocence. He didn't get two tickets to paradise. He got one ticket to purgatory, if you know what I mean. He was paying with, a, with his heart breaking every step of the way for the rebellion that he had. It wasn't what he thought. So after leaving the table and leaving the family and leaving his father, we move into the missing the table. In verse 14 and 15, you see the famine hits, and he's got to get a job. He hadn't had a job before in his life. And it's not just kind of herding some sheep, herding some cattle. No, he's feeding pigs. And I wondered many times as I've read this as a kid growing up, and even preached on it before, I've, I've just thought, why, why didn't the father come after him when he knew the famine? Well, I wondered how you know, the youngest son is. Why didn't somebody come after him? Well, in Jewish culture, it wasn't the father's place. Whose place would it have been to come after a younger, rebellious kid? Older brother. Firstborn blues. How many have had the firstborn blues before, you know? And you think, why am I the baby? Why am I the oldest? Or even worse, why am I stuck in the middle and I keep score on both, you know? He, he, he had that responsibility, but he didn't seem to take that. Remember, the Pharisees are listening. They're the ones who have to, ought to go after people with compassion, inviting them to the table. And then verse 16, the hunger strike happens, and he, he can't even share lunch with the pigs he's feeding. And then he has this moment of clarity. I love the phrase, he came to his senses. Coming to our senses means that we do the math. You don't have the moment of clarity until you have the moment of severity. Until you feel it. They say that people don't change when they see the light. <laughs> they only change when they feel the heat. Until we feel it. And he felt that. Here's the math that he did. Okay, my dad's servants, are they never go without food. Dad takes real good care of them, and they work, but, but he takes good care of them. And here I am, I, I don't have a thing. I don't know where my next meal is going to come, and I'm feeding these pigs. 
It says in the Bible that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and until we let that happen, if many of us have wandered off, or many of us even in the crowds that we'll have this weekend are, are kind of in the distant country, but you're checking things out on the weekend to see if the table is worth coming to or coming back to, I want you to know it is. It, but it begins with this reality therapy of smelling the coffee and realizing that there is no other place like a place that's close to God. But it had to happen then. Uh, singer in the 70s, Barry White, uh, ha had that really low down, love you, baby kind of voice, all right? And most of us wish we ha had that kind of voice, you know? And, and uh, I heard in an interview with him that he kind of grew up in church, kind of got a little wavered, ran with the wrong crowd, uh, stole a few things, wound up doing a little time. And he says, I'll never forget the moment while I'm in prison. And uh, I'm just thinking how far I've fallen, honestly, away from God. He said, tears came up in my eyes. I'm just laying there. All of a sudden, they, they had music going on, you know, late at night. You know, they're just in the background where you could hear, kind of cover up the noise. And he says, a song came on. And he says, it was an Elvis song. And I'm thinking, okay, what kind of Elvis song would really be some kind of life change thing? Ain't nothing but a hound dog? No, you feel bad enough the way it is. And then I think it's got to be uh, Jailhouse Rock. Oh, yeah, no, that's not the one. Heartbreak Hotel? No. He said it was a song by Elvis, It's Now or Never. He came to his senses and just said, I can't continue this path. In the recovery world, my life has been, become unmanageable, and I need some help. See, he came to that point. And it's a beautiful moment seeing that moment of clarity, which leads in the next couple of verses, 18, 19, to the strategy and the acknowledgement. He says, I'm going to go home. I, I mean, the game is kind of over here, that's for sure. And I will own it. He says, I'll do this two-dimensional sin because I realize it's just wasn't a bad choice. And I'm in a timeout. This, this is a sin against heaven, against all that God has intended for me, and it's a sin against my dad. He understood that, that sin has spiritual consequences, and it has personal consequences. He was willing for his heart to be changed. I, I've got a buddy who uh, leads worship uh, at a church uh, a lot uh, far away from here over in uh, uh, Kentucky in the western part there. And uh, he's a great guy. And, and uh, he didn't always grow up in church. And uh, one, one time the minister, he was telling me this story a, a year or two ago. He said, uh, they asked me uh, during communion to kind of put a couple of songs together. He said, and, and the week before I'd done it, and it was like, uh, uh, you might remember that, how great is our God, sing with me, how great, great song. And then go into, then sings my soul, my Savior, great, great mashup. And, and he said, the minister told me, I want you to do this little chorus, and then whatever you want after that. He says, it's an old chorus from the 80s in, in churches, kind of a camp thing of uh, change my heart, oh God, make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God, may I be like you. He said, I never heard that, so I'm working on that, working on that, got that. And then I, I, he said, I did it. It was right after the communion part. And then I knew I was supposed to go to something else. He said, but I hadn't figured out what to go to. And he said, for the life of me, the only thing I could come up with after it changed my heart, oh God, to be consistent in the moment is I'm looking at the man in the mirror. 
And I remember saying, how did that go, you know? He said, well, they haven't asked me to do it again, you know, but, uh, but I, I think it's genius. That, that, that is a part of you have to look at the person in the mirror. Who, who am I? Who have I become? And he came to his senses and begins to return to the table. Verse 20, 21, the return and the speech. He didn't consult culture around him. He headed home. And his father was patiently waiting to passionately welcome him. Ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him, to leave no doubt that you are my son. And he had rehearsed this speech every step of the way. Verse 22 is the reinstatement, and you see all of a sudden the father interrupts that speech as he begins to do that before he asks. He really gets into the speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he asks for a job, the father interrupts him. And he says, simply, quick, start the party. Now's the time. The finest robe, the finest ring, the finest sandals. He didn't say, well, I'm glad you're back, and you should have known better, and if you got any money left, or did you blow my hard-earned money of all this? He didn't have this accountable moment. He said, you are my son. Mark it down. God interrupts your apology. He does. To remind you when he sees our repentant heart. Then the reason to celebrate 23-24, the fattened calf, uh, it's a big deal because my son was dead, now he's alive. He was lost, now he's found. You move on to the further drama, 25 and 26, the older uh, brother returns and he begins to question. Uh, there's music and dancing, and, and that's what brought him in from the field. He said, what in the world is going on? This is not typical. Well, there wasn't anything to play music or to dance about with the youngest one out there. But when he comes home, it's time for the party. Verse 27, uh, he asks the servant, and the servant begins to explain to him. He said, your brother's back, your 4-H project is in the smoker, and the party is on, okay? Verse 28, 29, he gets angry, and here's the reason for his anger. He said, because it isn't fair. You know, the younger one gets away with murder, and he's resistant to join in. He doesn't want to celebrate. He didn't miss his younger brother. Because he obviously had not taken time to have any relationship with his younger brother. And obviously, he hadn't taken time to have relationship with his father. He'd been way out in the field all this time. And he has a depth of resentment in verse 30. Because he says, this son of yours. And then he gives this, these specific immorality charges, squandering money. And now he throws his dad under the bus saying, and you... You throw a party. Remember, Jesus is talking to people who are far away and need to come close to God and to Pharisees who thought they were close to God, but they were really far away. And I love the affirmation he gives the younger son. I mean, as I read this, I'm mad at the, the older brother. I'm ready to kick him through the goalposts of life, you know? You, you just think, oh, come on. How can you be so selfish and self-absorbed? And he doesn't chew his oldest son out. He gives him affirmation. My dear son, all I have is yours. But it seems like he's going to miss the party. He says the bottom line is, I love you. I love you both. Yeah, you're going to get all the money. Yeah, but, but don't, don't spend my money while I'm still alive. 
But please understand this. You have to celebrate when somebody comes home. Jesus had said earlier that when a person repents, when a person acknowledges who God is and who Jesus is, that all of heaven celebrates. They strike up the band. And now there's, there is a party for you that, that happened if you're a follower of Jesus when you acknowledged who he was. Now let's tie this together and, and kind of wind it down. Because we got to learn from this. Let's learn a little from the prodigal, a little from the older brother, and a lot from the loving father. Prodigals tend to have an acute resentment. In other words, it just for a moment, and something impetuous and something kind of stupid, and then it's over. And if you have had a prodigal moment, I have, most of us have on some level, and some of us have sustained on that, and we've, we've, we've just had a, more than a moment of that. But prodigals tend to do that. When you have that moment of resentment, we tend to accept substitutes for what we long for. And the prodigal said, you know what, I don't feel a part of this. I, I want a little more freedom. I don't have any meaning in my life. I'm bored here. I don't want to wind up like my brother. And I, I'm not even sure he was that mad at his dad. I just think he, he thought, if dad's going to clock out here sometime, I don't want to work for him. Let me start all over somewhere else. I don't know. Who knows? It really doesn't matter. But prodigals tend to look for love in all the wrong places. Prodigals tend to let shame keep them in the far away country. And I, I have to say something to uh, uh, most of us who are believers already today, and I know some throughout the service will, will be struggling a little bit with that, questioning, wondering, but I want you to know that if we are a believer and we have wandered off for a while, please, 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 don't let your shame keep you there. Don't feel like the love of the Father and even the love of the other brothers and sisters in the family of God are looking at you like something's wrong. We're all messed up, amen? <laughs> it's just a matter of degree. And a matter of whether we're willing to come back and not let shame keep us there. I heard a poem long ago. I think it goes, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. Sin will teach you more than you wanted to know. Sin will cost you more than you thought you'd pay. And sin will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. Prodigals tend to take a long time to come to their senses. In the immortal words of Amy Winehouse, they tried to make me go to rehab, and I said, no, no, no. We're all in resistance. Truth is, all of us need some form of rehabilitation. Truth is, all of us in the kingdom of God, when we become a believer, there's some stuff we got to get rid of so it won't eat our lunch and take us to the cleaners and any other form or, or metaphor you want to have that will hold us back. And we need to allow God's healing to come about and not just self-diagnose because sin itself is very addicting. Now we'll look at the older brother or what I would call a solo sibling. They got brothers and sisters. They just pretend that they don't. They have chronic resentment. I mean, it's all the time, time after time, last time, this time, and next time. And the resentment they have in their heart is what they're addicted to. They don't want to get over it. So they become hateful and ungrateful. It seems like resentment finds its identity in that being able to spout out 
something. And what I call on, uh, I'm not on Facebook, but what I've heard goes on there. I call it a drive-by shooting. Is that safe to call it that? Okay, you know, just hit somebody hard, hit and run kind of a thing. The, the older brother or the solo sibling, if you're caught in that type of resentment, you, you refuse and accuse. You pout and say, I'm not going to come in. I'm not going to allow grace to come to somebody else. And, and they miss the idea in Revelation 12:10 that one of the nicknames of the devil that the Bible uses is the accuser. The one who points the finger like I'm doing right now. The accuser of our brothers in verse 10, Revelation 12, who has been thrown down meaning the devil, who accuses them day and night while Jesus, our advocate, defends us day and night. They sometimes take a long time to come to the party because in their mind they did it right, they did by the rules, no grace needed for them, nobody else deserves it. I earned it, I nailed it, but they still miss the party. And it's not until we look at the loving Father it's not until we, whether we're a far country with uh, rebellious issues or right there at home in the field with resentment issues, it's not until we all lay everything aside and simply come to the table to be with, with God, with the Father. Here's what the loving Father is like. He respects our free will. Would you say that with me? He respects our free will. He is a gentleman. He, he gave us his free will. He acknowledges that. Whosoever believeth in him, he allows us to have that freedom. The second thing is he sees us from the porch. Would you say that with me? He sees us from the porch. He knows what's going on. He's looking for us. He's vigilant over us, waiting for that moment. Just just carefully looking to see. In this parable, you see all these scenarios of, of the, the young one in the far away, uh, the, the older in the field, and the dad on the porch, but the dad does not stay on the porch. He stays on the porch, but he's willing to move off of the porch when the time comes. Please understand that our loving Father, Jesus is saying, runs faster to us than we did from him. He's not just vigilant. He pursues us. Now, this next one is probably my favorite. <laughs> he doesn't ask for an itemized sin sheet, all right? How many can say hallelujah to that one, all right? How many know right here the person next to you ought to be very grateful that that doesn't happen, okay? <laughs> I'm so thankful that he interrupts us. I remember the time I apologized to my father, and it wasn't the first time. But it was a time after uh, at least seven or eight years after I knew I'd kind of deeply hurt my folks, had my time in the faraway country being stupid. And uh, I just had to tell him. He, he was, uh, my dad had been widowed twice and he remarried twice after that. And he, he was about to remarry and I knew my access to him was going to diminish. And I remember I just went to him and I just had to tell him, Dad, Remember back when, I'm still sorry. Anybody ever have to say, I'm still sorry? I'm still sorry. And I just had to tell him one more time. So I do like I'm doing now. I can't quite get through that. And I just pull his head to me so I don't have to say it out loud. Let me just kind of whisper it and kind of squeeze it out a little bit here. I said, Dad, you remember that? I just want to let you know I'm still sorry. No, no, no. He interrupts me. He interrupts me. 
And he says, oh, I forgot about that a long time ago. Don't you worry about that. You know, God's grace takes care of all of us. See, he, came, he comes off the porch. That's what, that's what our father does. He interrupts our repentant speech with grace. And he loves each child appropriately. To the prodigal, he says, welcome home as he runs to them. And to the older resentful that still struggles, he comes off the porch and he talks and he says, dear son, dear child, you're still in. I just need you here. You see, after we set the table, Dom is right in his video, in his testimony, we get to set it for other people. But that setting it for other people means we wait on the porch to welcome, or it means we go to the field to reason. That's what we do. I've got a buddy who preaches in uh, Hannibal, Missouri, Tim Goodman. Went to school with Tim. Great guy. We're on a board together that serves for Blessing Ranch. Uh, so we're together for a, a board meeting. Uh, typically, it used to be in Colorado. They moved to Florida now uh, for a couple of days, a couple of times a year. And he and some other fellows, we get a chance to be and share in that and talk. And this last time, about three weeks ago, uh, he was telling us a story, and it just, just caught my heart. He was talking about a fella, and he's been there at the church where he's preached for a long time. And he said... Uh, I got a fellow in the church, just passed away, just did his funeral. He said, and he'd been kind of struggling for quite a while, and it had been a hard road. He said, I try to catch him, you know, every week or every couple of weeks just to make sure he knows that I care, we care, God cares. He said, we had some really neat talks. We talked a lot about uh, the past, uh, talked about, you know, not being afraid of heaven and uh, dying because God's... Got heaven ready for you? And he said, just in that last week before he passed away, he said, he looked up at me and he said, Tim, thanks for walking me home. I thought, thanks for walking me home. Thanks for walking the, the hard steps of the end of my life to get to the big table. And I wonder how many of us need somebody to walk us to this table. I want to invite you to stand right now and, and we'll sing. And it might be one of those that we don't necessarily sing a lot, but we let our worship team sing for us and sing over us. But the main thing I want to ask you to do is we have folks who are moving now to be ready to be right down front here when they see you come and you want to have that next conversation of what does it look like? What does it look like to take this next step? What is it like? How am I going to rehearse this speech to acknowledge I'm in the faraway country and I want to come home, I don't know how. Or maybe I'm out in the field and I have always been resentful and, I, and I've tried to earn my way to heaven and I'm finally coming to the point that I realize I can't. What does that path look like? We invite you to come and talk and listen. And let God move in your heart so you do that if he's prompted your heart to do that. Let's sing together.